0: 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 17, Paul says, "...but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy." Now, we spoke a little bit last week in our closing statements about the tragedy of Paul's countrymen. Uh, Paul spent some time talking about the long-storied past that Israel as a nation had in persecuting uh, the prophets of God and that culminating in Calvary, in the crucifixion of Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just make this statement before we move on. Uh, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He loved the Jewish people to such a degree. He said he uh, would wish that he were a curse, that they might know Christ. Uh, that he would be willing to suffer hell if it meant every Jew went to heaven. And so the statements that he makes are not statements of bitterness or malice, but they are statements of observation. He's merely recognizing the role that they have played because he's talking to early New Testament believers that are facing real, tangible, palpable persecution from the Jews that they are encountering. And what he's doing is reminding them that this is not out of step. Uh, But that rebellious hearts, and the Jews as a people even today, broadly speaking, now not necessarily every Jew individually, I'm glad, hey listen, Paul says that the veil that's over their eyes in the reading of Moses can be taken away in Christ. There's plenty of uh, people that are walking around that are of Jewish ancestry that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, received the Messiah, been born again and been saved, and I praise the Lord for that. But as a nation, they are still under judicial blindness. That veil is over their eyes in the reading of Moses. And so Paul has been talking about how this is not out of keeping with their attitude and disposition. They always persecuted uh, the uh, gospel from the very earliest days that it was preached in the world. And they are still doing that even today, Paul says. He says that as uh, the Thessalonians, uh, or Thessalonians were, were just experiencing uh, the same persecution uh, that many others were experiencing at that time. Uh, Paul then in verse number 17 begins to talk about the tangibility of his crown. That's how the commentator says it. Really, the way we could describe that in layman's terms is he begins to talk about why he's laboring amongst them. Now, remember that the theme of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is the second coming of the Lord. Uh, I, one commentator said it this way that 1st Thessalonians is, uh, is occupied with the rapture of the church, and 2nd Thessalonians is occupied with the rupture of the world. Uh, you know, and, and we'll talk about it even at length here in a moment, that the second coming Lord Jesus has two aspects to it. Uh, that there was the, uh, there is the rapture of the church, but then there is His glorious appearing when He comes and all the world will see Him. And so respectively, the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians follow those two themes. And so Paul, in talking about their laboring amongst the church at Thessalonica, He boils everything down as the reason for why he's doing what he's doing, why he's labored for them, uh, is that in verse number 19, he says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. So in other words, all of the labor of Paul's life was motivated by the fact that he recognized that one day he was going to meet the Lord and he didn't want to meet the Lord empty handed. So under this short heading of the tangibility of Paul's crown, we find a few thoughts. One, we see his earnest desire. He says, verse 17, we brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. This is the great hope that he fostered. He wanted to see them once again. He never sought trying to get back. Uh, he says that they, he wanted to see them face to face. Quite clearly, Paul did not take his expulsion from the city of Thessalonica sitting down, but he was overruled. Perhaps the new believers, apprehensive uh, of persecution intensifying against him, urged him to leave at least for a while. It was about five years before he was able to come back at the end of his third missionary journey. But of that visit, we have only Luke's barest note. Paul, however, assured his converts that he wanted to be back with them in person with great desire. The word that's used here is epithumia. It means a craving. It's the word that the Lord Jesus used when he told his disciples with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's the word that Paul uses when he is in prison at Rome to describe his heartache for heaven. He says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better." Uh, The word that is translated uh, lust some 30 times in the New Testament. In other words, this great yearning, this great desire, this great passion that he had. And by the way, I find it interesting he used that word in both of those ways. You know, it's almost as though in Paul's heart, if he couldn't be in heaven, he wanted to be with God's people. If he could not go home and be with the Lord, what he wanted more than anything else was to be laboring amongst those uh, that needed Christ and those that had received Christ And it's a reminder to you and I that the greatest way we can employ our time and energy is in the work of the Lord. We'll never be more satisfied than when we are serving the Lord. So we see the great hope that he fostered. And then we see the great hindrance that he faced. He said, wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But he says, Satan hindered us. On Paul's second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit had hindered him from staying in Asia Minor and had flung open the door of opportunity to Europe. Now it was Satan that hindered him. Paul knew the difference between the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit and the restricting opposition of the evil one. He could tell that Satan was actively trying to keep him away from these fledgling believers. Paul very likely recognized the personal activity of Satan behind the rioting that had driven him out of Thessalonica. We're not told exactly how Satan hindered Paul's repeated attempts to return to Thessalonica. It's possible that Satan was behind the ruling of the magistrates there, putting it into their minds to demand such security from Jason as would ensure that Paul left town permanently. Say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, that uh, just as surely as we commit ourselves to the work of the Lord, the devil will commit himself to the stopping of that work. Anytime we make up our mind to serve God, and you will see this in your own personal life, the more serious you get with God, the more serious Satan will get with you. And it will not just be light attacks. It will not just uh, sort of, uh, you know, be pet blows, but it will be serious opposition that you would face. And Paul recognized that Satan was trying to hinder him. So we see here Paul's earnest desire, but then we see his eternal delight. We're going to say a word here. He says in verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? In this statement, we see the reward that he expected for his labor for the Lord. The word for crown is the word Stephanos, the victor's crown, the crown that was given to the winner in the Olympic Games. It's a favorite symbol for a reward or a prize. What greater anticipation or joy could Paul have than to see his converts stepping forward at the judgment seat of Christ to receive their reward? Apart from anything else, <laughs> excuse me, that would crown the apostle's own efforts. He was going to rejoice, he says. The word for rejoicing can be translated ex- exultation. It means to expound, to exclaim, to shout uh, for joy and excitement. Almost as proud parents exult in the achievements of their children, so Paul, a proud father, was already anticipating the joy of seeing his Thessalonian converts winning their reward. What greater reward could he want than that? He was confident that he had rewards coming to him. He had earned one crown at least, a crown of rejoicing and exultation. The triumph of his dear Thessalonians assured him of that fact. You know, of all the things that we do for the Lord, and we should do much for the Lord, but there's probably nothing that we will be more thrilled at, nothing we'll be more proud of when we meet the Lord face to face than those that we've won to Christ. There are a great many uh, Christians that are going to have a lot of faithfulness without a lot of fruitfulness. Now, listen, I wish I won more people to Christ than I do, and I trust that you wish that for your own self as well. But let me say, faithfulness, while it's necessary for the work of God, faithfulness should not displace fruitfulness. We shouldn't say to ourselves, well, I'm keeping a steady course and that's all that matters. Now, it's not to suggest that you and I can strong-arm people into getting saved. It's not to say that God is sitting up in heaven counting noses and looking for people running the best numbers. But it's to say that in your life and mine, If all we're doing is just going to church, reading our Bible, praying, being what we would call faithful, we shouldn't look at that and say, hey, I'm doing everything I need to do. We should be asking ourselves, what are we adding to the work of God in our life? Do you remember there was a man that was faithful? The Lord Jesus told a parable about some talents that a man entrusted to some stewards. And one man took that uh, pound that was given to him and he gave it to the traders and he used it on the market and he came back and he had five pounds in replace of that first pound. And there was another one that took and did the very same thing, and he brought ten pounds. But then there was one steward, and this is what he did, because he was scared of losing that talent. He took it, he wrapped it in a napkin, he buried it in the ground. And then when the master returns, he brings that talent, presents it, and says, see what I've done? I have faithfully kept what you've given to me. The Lord Jesus in that parable said that the master looked at him and called him an evil and unwise steward. In other words, it's not enough just to maintain. We ought to be multiplying what God has done in our life. So we see the reward that he expected, but then we see the return that he expected. He says, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? The word for coming here is the word "perusia." It's the first of seven occurrences of this word in these two epistles. This word occurs 24 times in the New Testament. Its first occurrence is in the prelude to the Lord's Olivet Discourse. The disciples asked him, what shall be the sign of thy coming? In everyday secular life, the word was used as a technical expression for the arrival of a king or some other person in authority. And the word literally means presence. The word is always connected with a period of time, whether short or long. It draws attention to the say and what happens once the arrival has taken place. When the word is used in the New Testament in connection with the Lord, it refers to a specific period. For instance, Peter used it to describe the brief moment when the Lord was transfigured. He and he and his friends were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When this word is used in a prophetic sense, it covers a very specific time period. The word parousia refers to a future period that will begin with the rapture the arrival of the Lord in the air, and that will end with His return, with His unveiling of Himself in power and glory to the world, the Epiphanes. During this interim period, the perusia of the Lord in the air and the rapid development on earth of the mystery of iniquity, we shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Hearing this epistle, Paul anticipates that event with a great deal of eagerness thanks to the victorious lives of his Thessalonian converts. Now, there's something interesting I came across, and I don't know that I've ever really considered it in this light. and I don't know that I could subscribe to this, to be frank with you. I don't know that I could say I 100% believe this, but I thought it was very, very interesting. Uh, the One commentator described the judgment seat of Christ as taking place, not in heaven or on earth, but in the very clouds. That when the Lord returns in the clouds, and we're caught up together with Him in the air, that there in the clouds He'll hold court and during the period of the tribulation will be when the judgment seat of Christ takes place, and that the revelation of the Lord will be the splitting of those clouds after the judgment seat, and there with the saints already there, present at the judgment seat of Christ, He'll return and set foot on the earth. Now, I don't know that I could say I I necessarily, I don't know that I disagree with any of that. I don't know that I likewise could say I subscribe to all of that. But certainly it is true that when we study prophecy in the Scripture, uh, for the believer, the judgment seat of Christ, there is no necessary, you know, necessarily a specific time period that it says, this is when this event will take place. But it is described as an event that involves more than one person. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so it's not just something that on a personal basis, you die, go to heaven, have your own little meeting with the Lord. Rather, it's described as a great event that encompasses a great many people. And I would say that I can find no better answer in Scripture than what the commentator suggests. The idea that it takes place not only during the tribulation period, which I think is pretty clearly taught in Scripture, but actually takes place in the clouds themselves. And that's part of the reason that in these two epistles, there's such a deep connectedness between the rapture of the church and the return or appearing, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what Paul is describing, at certain events the rapture, at others the revelation, but he's describing it as all part of this one event that spans a period of a minimum of at least seven years. Some people have said, Preacher, how long, you know, could the tribulation last longer? Could there be a period of time after the rapture before the tribulation starts? And there's a lot of what if theology we could engage in. I suppose it is possible there could be the rapture, then a period of time undisclosed, and then the tribulation starts. But I've found that there's no reason to read things into Scripture that are not presently there. And so I see no reason. Uh, to deviate from the idea that the rapture will take place, uh, the judgment seat of Christ will then immediately commence while the tribulation is taking place on the earth, and that both of those events will come to a close at the same period of time. So he describes here the coming of the Lord, and he's describing it in the context of, of our appearing before Him, not just His appearing to us, but our appearing before Him to give an account. And that's part of the thing that explains why he makes mention of this here. He's talked about how he's labored amongst them. And he says, hey, listen, I'm excited one day to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be surrounded by people that I've shared the gospel with that know the Lord Jesus. And he said, the reason I'm so invested and interested in your life is because I don't want either of us to be ashamed on that day. I want it to be a day of great rejoicing, and that's what he describes at, the, at verse twenty. He, he describes the rejoicing he expects. He says, "You are our glory and joy." You know what people glory and rejoice in reveals their character and their spiritual condition. Me and brother Fred were talking about this on Sunday night. And I've had this conversation many times over the year. That that humor and delight is one of the great tools and weapons that the devil uses. If he can get people to laugh about sin, then he can get them to accept sin. Uh, and that's part of the reason I could give you examples uh, over the past 20, 30 years, but you've seen the rapid moral decline of our country. And what depravity it, that's commonly accepted today was not sort of injected into the common vernacular and, and acceptance of society, uh, through humor. It seems like, uh, listen, late night comedians and, and skit shows crack jokes about every manner of depravity that existed, and when people laughed at it, it wasn't long before they accepted it. Because what you glory in, what you rejoice in, what you delight yourself in, says a lot about who you are, and to some degrees, uh, shapes and molds uh, a part of you. Uh, what people glory and rejoice in reveals their character and their spiritual condition. What about Paul? Well, Paul loves people. He lives for people. He spent his life winning people to Christ and building them up in the faith. His glory and joy was to see people saved and established in the things of God. And his ambition was to see them at last as crowns and trophies to put at Jesus' feet. In other words, it was his hobby, his passion, his labor, his vocation, his work, his calling. It was everything. And because of that, he said, one of these days, all of that effort, all of that, all of that work, will be on display and will be shown and will be proven and revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Now turn over to chapter number 3 with me. And let's take a few moments and look at this chapter. And we'll find sort of a similar structure, if we can say it that way. When we read the first uh, portion of this, particularly uh, down to verse number 11, we find it is very personal in nature. He is recounting some of the things that he experienced as He worried over them and prayed for them. But just like in chapter 2, you have this very personal information, personal letter, and then when you come to the close of chapter 2, He introduces again this topic of the return of the Lord Jesus. You have the very same thing in chapter 3. Let's read beginning at verse number 1. It's only 13 verses. We'll read all of it and then begin to deconstruct it. Verse number 1 says, "...wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone." and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear... I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you that to the end He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. As we have looked through these chapters, we have talked about the Lord's coming in chapter 1, a saving truth, and in chapter 2, the Lord's coming, a stimulating truth. But in chapter 3, Paul begins to discuss the Lord's coming as a stabilizing truth. It begins with him describing his concern in verses 1 through 5. He says that him and Silas had been present there at uh, Athens, and then even he sent Silas to Macedonia. He sent Timothy to Thessalonica. He was there alone, but he was willing to bear that because he was troubled and concerned over how these Thessalonian believers were uh, conducting and faring in his absence. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone, Paul says. Underline that word alone. Picture for yourselves what it's like to be left alone in a foreign country, surrounded by strangers, your heart aching for those whom you have left behind. There was no news from home uh, that for Paul as he waited in Thessala, or in Athens from Thessalonica. Uh, if he wanted to talk to someone, he had to uh, find someone on the street, one of the idlers standing around gawking at the sights or arguing with a fellow on the soapbox in the market. The apostle did have one friend, the same friend that we all have. He had a friend who knows all about being lonely. Uh, Paul, uh, Many were the long talks that Paul had with that friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But doubtless Paul, being human after all, felt as though he was desperately lonely in those days in that foreign country. He enjoyed his communion with the Lord, but he longed for someone with a face and a heart too. Uh, he was sick to death of Athens before long, and he went on to Corinth, where soon he made many friends. But in the meantime, he wandered the streets of Athens alone. Paul was a gregarious man. He liked people, but he endured the loneliness that he experienced for the sake of his beloved Thessalonian babes in Christ. Uh, In other words, Paul says, though I long to have companionship, though I long to have friends, though I long for fellow laborers, because of my deep and abiding concern for you, I was willing to stay in Athens alone. Athens was a place of paganism, of idolatry, It was a place where he was deeply uncomfortable. Luke tells us that when Paul was in Athens and he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry, that his spirit was stirred within him. There are certain times and seasons in Paul's ministry when he appears to enjoy the work and labor that he's engaged in. But Athens was not one of those times. Uh, The short discourse that's given for us, the short narrative from Luke is basically Paul arguing with those Epicureans and Stoics on Mars Hill and and being rebuffed and rejected by them. Uh, They unwilling to hear the witness and testimony of the Gospel. And Paul points to this as a time when he was willing to endure that because that's what was necessary for these young Christians to grow in the Word and work of the Lord. He describes the place where he had his concern. But he describes then the plan that was born from that concern. He says we, we, we could no longer forbear. We wanted to hear something. We were dying to hear something. So he says in verse 2, we sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. You know, in the book of Acts and throughout Paul's letters, we always seem to be bumping into this young man by the name of Timothy. He was one of Paul's converts and a young man whom Paul not only loved as a son, but also in whom he had the most implicit confidence. He seems to always be entrusting him with responsible missions. He sent him to Thessalonica, but not only there, he also sent him to Corinth and to Philippi. You remember he said uh, to the church at Philippi, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Then he said "But Timothy uh, is one that I can, and as a son with the Father, he hath served me in the Gospel. And that is high praise indeed from the Apostle Paul. So in other words, his concern was such that not only was he willing to bear uh the open hostility and 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 wickedness of being in Athens alone, but he was willing to send uh, what many could say was his right hand help, uh the uh man that was uh, we could say we could use the term his prodigy, uh whatever you want to describe it as. Uh, he was willing to send Timothy to go and labor in his place at Thessalonica. Now, you might say, well, preacher, you know, this is interesting, the the history is fascinating, but what does that say to me? I want you to understand the great lengths to which Paul was willing to go to shore up these new beliefs. I want to remind you that sometimes laboring in people's lives is not an easy thing. Sometimes it involves sacrifice, sacrifice of our time and our treasures, sacrifice of our attention. Sometimes we lay ourselves emotionally before people and invest in them only to be hurt and only to be discouraged by the way they respond to it. And sometimes in the midst of that, we'll get the idea that either we're doing this wrong or that somehow it's not worth it. But we have the testimony and example of this great apostle to remind us that people work is hard work. Soul winning work is hard work. Discipleship work is hard work discipleship is not something, I made this statement last week, discipleship is not a, a class that people go to. I'm not against discipleship classes. That's not what discipleship is. It's not a curriculum people follow. And I'm not against that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But the most fundamental element of discipleship is witness. Being with somebody, uh, instructing them in the truth of God's Word, and investing your life into their life. There's no substitute and there's no shortcut around that. We're going to have to invest in people's lives. We're going to have to take time with them. And that means pouring our emotional capital into their lives. Paul, at great personal cost to himself, I mean, you've got to remember, Paul is a man who's not well. He's not healthy. He needs help in his travel. He is a man that, that I mean, he's, by the time he writes it, he's half blind, you know. He needs help being led around. He, he constantly got himself into problems, you know. He was not a man that, that could easily travel in those days by himself, but he said, I was willing to bear all this because that's what was necessary to see you established in the faith. We see in this plan that he developed the messenger that was chosen. It was Timothy. Then we see the messenger being charged. What do you tell Timothy to do? He said to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Timothy's mission was clear. He was to establish the Thessalonian believers. The word that's used here is the word "sterezo," and it means to set fast or to make fast or to fix firmly. In other words, Timothy was sent to fix firmly the faith of the Thessalonians. He was to teach them more of God's Word. He was to visit in their homes, pray with them, tell them more about Jesus, and enable them to draw upon the illimitable resources of the Holy Spirit. He was to comfort them. The word used here means to call aside or to appeal to. It's the same word that Paul uses when he describes uh comforting them as a father does uh, his children in other words where Paul couldn't be he sent Timothy and he said Timothy your responsibility is uh is to go out and find these believers and 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 firm them up in the Lord uh, fix them up in the Lord. Make sure that they know that the Word, the Bible's the Word of God. Make sure they know that the persecution they're facing is not uh, uncommon or inappropriate. It's not an indictment against them, that it's hard living for Christ in these days. Remind them, comfort them that God's faithful, that He never leaves or forsakes us. In other words, Timothy, because Paul could not, was being sent to do that hard work, that personal work that is so necessary. Then notice the plea that is given in verse number three. Here's why he did this. Number one, because of the suffering that was faced, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. The persecution facing these new believers at Thessalonica did not cease when Paul was smuggled out of town. In fact, it went on for a long time. But you know, Paul preached no cheap gospel. He never watered down the cost of being a Christian. He says that no man should be moved. The word for move there is the word sino, and it means to wag the tail or to fawn or to flatter. In other words, the sense is that nobody should be deceived or deluded in the midst of persecution by someone who comes along with tail wagging suggestions, even though he might pose as a well wisher. We could stop. I won't take the time to do it, but we could stop and spend a lot of time railing on the name it and claim it. Uh, you know, uh, charismatic movement that suggests that when people fall on hard times it's because they don't have faith or it's because they they're somehow have sin in their life. It's true, when we have sin in our life, God will chasten us. Uh, but I know this, every time my daddy ever gave me a whipping, he always told me why I was getting a whipping. Uh, he always let me know it was because I had done something wrong. I think often when affliction comes into our life, if it's because of sin in our life, God, as a faithful and kind Father, He'll let us know the reason behind that. I never got a whipping that I didn't know what I was getting whipped for. There's a lot of things I should have got whipped for that Dad didn't know about, but there was never a time I got a whipping that I didn't know why I was getting the whipping. On the other side of it, when believers are facing persecution and opposition, you mark her down, one of the strategies the devil uses is to bring people along that offer them a cheap and easy way out. Can I tell you the easiest way to get Satan off your back? Compromise. Compromise. Sin and compromise. And Satan will get off your back. Now, you've got a whole worse world of hurt that's coming to you if you take that avenue. But in Paul's day, just as today, there were people that would come along and encourage them to compromise their convictions and try to take the easy way out of opposition. He's saying, listen, don't be moved away from your convictions and, and, and your, your you know, confirmed beliefs by these afflictions. This word also suggests the idea of, of being perturbed or losing heart or being shaken. In other words, Paul was determined to leave no stone unturned. His converts must stand firm despite their suffering. He hoped that the suffering, far from shaking them, would only strengthen their faith. I wonder how often, and listen, I, the, in, boy, how do I say this correctly? You know, we do things like vacation Bible school. We do things like church camp. We do things like our Track Day Challenge. And I, we ought to be doing those things. I believe in those things. Um, I love those things that we do. But imagine how disconcerting it is for a person that gets saved and never has any spiritual input in their life after that when all of a sudden Satan shows up in their life and clocks them right in the jaw. Imagine how troubling that is, how dizzying that is, not having someone present there to say, now, don't be shaken, Don't, don't, don't be moved, Just keep going ahead. Just keep doing what you know to be right. It's paramount. And many of us, we may have experienced that very thing, but you're here today because we had people that invested in our lives that encouraged us and comforted us, just as Timothy did for these believers when those times came. And that's to say we shouldn't abandon those that God gives us a door of utterance and entrance with. By the way, you know, sometimes you'll be the person that picks up the pieces where another has done that. And and oftentimes it won't be because they planned on it. Uh, It won't be because they tried to abandon that person. Sometimes the circumstances of life will be such that there's not an opportunity. Sometimes people won't reach out for the help and discipleship that they need. But I'm saying don't dismiss the fact that God may put you in someone's life that you may not lead to the Lord, but you have been placed there to disciple them. You have been placed there to firmly fix their faith. So we see suffering faced here. And then we see suffering foretold. Verse number 4, For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass in you know, Perhaps one reason why the Thessalonians were so steadfast in the face of suffering and persecution lay in the fact that Paul had foretold it. Uh, he said this was going to take place. Uh, in other words, uh, it, it did not surprise them. Uh, They hadn't been sold some vial of snake oil by some TV preacher. They had never anticipated anything else because Paul had been transparent and honest with them in saying, you've made a decision to follow Christ. Understand that this is always accompanied by satanic opposition. Listen, we shouldn't try to sweeten up the reality of being a Christian. If Christ isn't enough to bear us through tribulation, then nothing will be enough. But if He is enough, then we shouldn't have to lie to new converts about what being a Christian means. We should just be able to point them towards Jesus and say, yeah, it may listen, it may mean people turn their back on you. It may mean they lie about you. It may mean that they betray you. It may mean that they sabotage you. But in all of that, the Lord is more than enough, and you can trust Him. In other words, we shouldn't sugarcoat what discipleship means. That's the exact opposite of the strategy that the Lord Jesus used. We preach on this sometime, I don't know when it was. I preach a lot of messages. At some point we preached on this and we were talking about discipleship and the Lord Jesus gives three different examples. He says, if you won't do this, you cannot be my disciple. When the Lord preached about following Him, He didn't preach to you, you believe in Me and you'll never have a problem again. Uh, Some TV preacher thought that up, but the Lord Jesus never said that. In fact, what He would say is, He would say, if you follow Me, the way is hard. The road is steep. It's difficult. Uh, if you're going to put your hand to the plow, you better not turn back. If you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. If you're going to follow me, you better take up your cross. You better be willing to bear it. In other words, he didn't make being a disciple of Christ being easy. He was transparent and honest. And Paul followed this same example. He had told them that suffering was part of what they would experience. But then notice that he talks about a plot that was like an undercurrent flowing beneath all of this. We see the anxiety he confessed about this in verse number 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith. Paul was on tender hooks while he awaited Timothy's return. Uh, He knew that the tempter, Satan, was at large and busy, driven by his malicious hatred of God and his people. And that's what he says. He describes the adversary being confronted. He says, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Paul well knew the wiles of the devil. The devil's a dirty fighter. He knows all of the low-down tricks. And Paul knew only too well how Satan would tempt the Thessalonians to purchase peace with the world at the unacceptable price of apostasy. By the way, I didn't insert this into my notes, but... It wouldn't be long after this during the reign of Nero when persecution was really hot and heavy against Christians that all a person had to do very often to prove their fealty to Nero and to prove they weren't a Christian was take and sprinkle a little salt on a pagan uh, idol. And if they'd be willing to do that, that would get them out of their persecution that would prove that they were not a follower of Jesus and that they truly adhered to the old uh, gods of Rome. And I thought, man, how fitting that is. You know, that's exactly what the devil's still trying to do today. You know, salt in the New Testament is described as the manifest testimony of the life of Christ in us through the grace of God. In other words, if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's fit for nothing, but to be trodden underfoot. It's not fit for the land. It's not fit for the dung heap. It's fit for nothing, but to be trodden underfoot. Here's all that Satan wants from you. He wants you to give away everything about you that makes you seem like a Christian. If you'll do that, he'll leave you alone. You'll take that salt and give it to that pagan altar and that pagan idol. He'll leave you alone. He just wants you to give up everything about you that makes you distinguishable from the world. If you'll do that, and by the way, he'll let you keep the name Christian. He'll let you keep the title of Christianity. Much of modern day Christianity is defined by these very same ideas where they've taken everything that is worldly, put the name Christian on it, and said now it's Christian. Well, the problem is, everything that distinguished it from the world, they've thrown away. They've taken the salt and thrown it out. And now all that's left is not fit for anything else. So we see the plot that was unfolding under all of these things. We see Paul's concern. Number two, we see Paul's comfort. Verse number six, he says, But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity... And that you have a good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. He would go on to describe how they were comforted by this. But first he mentions the tidings that he had received. Such was the bond of love and affection that Paul and Silas formed with their converts. Paul loved people. He was eager to meet those who responded to the gospel invitation and anxious to get to know them, to visit in their homes, to meet their relatives, to instruct them in the first steps of the Christian faith, to teach them the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, and to see them baptized and growing in grace and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul did not consider evangelism to be worthy of the name if it divorced itself from a heart and soul love relationship with those that were led to the Lord through his ministry. No wonder they desired greatly to see him again. He was not just the man under whose preaching they had been led to the Lord. They had come to know him personally. They had sensed his love, warmth, and sincere interest in them individually. He was their friend. They were his friends. He had been a guest in their homes. He remembered their names. He loved them. So Timothy returned to Paul, brimming over with the good news. The Thessalonians were doing well. Satan had been unable to shake their faith. Their love was triumphant. Let me make this a statement. And I don't think this is a controversial statement, but a lot of the statements I make are not controversial till I find out later that they are. <laughs> everybody needs a pastor to love them. And everybody needs a pastor to love. I, listen, I'm not against... you know There are people who God gives them a scope of ministry beyond just being a pastor. And I hate to even use that terminology of just being a pastor. It's, not, it's no small thing to be a pastor in a local church. But I'm, I'm not against evangelists. I'm not against... People who God, I mean, that's a biblical New Testament office, do the work of an evangelist. God's given some evangelists. I'm not opposed to that at all. Let me say none of that displaces the personal relationship that you ought to have with a local body of believers and a local pastor. You need someone that knows your life, that can speak directly to your life in your life. Uh that's the reason you may find, hey, there's probably good men on on TV preaching. I don't watch TV preachers, so I don't really know it. But I'm sure there are. I'm sure there's good men that that do those things. You may have some that you watch and you love. and, And that's great, man. Praise the Lord for that. If they help you and if they're biblical, then I'm for that. I'm not against that. But understand, none of that displaces the relationship you need to have in the local church and with a local pastor. And for the Apostle Paul, he said it is paramount that we develop this relationship with each other. That I know you, that you know me. He was not someone that held people at a distance, but he's someone that embraced them. We see the tidings Paul received, but then we see the tenderness that Paul revealed, how it affected his life. He says in verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. The Thessalonians had been going through it, and Paul too had been going through it. His deep concern for them was only part of it. By the time Timothy caught up with him, Paul was already launched on his gospel crusade in nearby Corinth. He arrived in that city in weakness and much fear and trembling. That's he described it in 1 Corinthians 1. He had been mauled at Philippi and he had been mocked at Athens. In Corinth too, Paul had been exposed to much persecution and danger. The Jews had thrown him out of the synagogue. Attempts against him had finally broken out in insurrection and Paul was dragged before the authorities. And into all of this bleakness and all of this darkness and all of this raging storm came this news about the Thessalonian believers. Almost, listen, like, like, like a cool breeze on a hot day, like a, like a cold drink of water in the midst of a desert. And he was encouraged to know, hey listen, it's worth it after all. There's no telling how our faithfulness can encourage and build up others that have poured themselves into our life. And that's what he begins to talk about. We see the triumph that Paul reviewed in verses 8 through 10. He, he describes basically two things. One, he describes how his life was linked with thirst. He says in verse 8, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Don't divorce that from the backdrop of severe persecution Paul was experiencing. And I think sometimes, and I, I'm not necessarily going to criticize this, but I, I think sometimes more is made of this statement than Paul intended. Sometimes we take this to mean some great, deep, spiritual, you know, truth. Here's what I think Paul was saying. Paul dipped his pen in ink to assure his converts that his life was linked with theirs. The if here was not intended to question their stability. Rather, it was simply a reminder to them that his peace of mind depended on their bold stand for Christ. Paul's converts were a vital part of his life. He loved them and lived in them. Did someone try to lead them astray? Paul was outraged. Did someone attack them? Paul leaped to their defense. Were they suffering persecution? Paul's heart ached for them. He wept with those who wept. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He wrote to them. He kept in touch with them. As far as was humanly possible, Paul involved himself in the affairs of their life. Think for an instance of the catalog of names that are such an integral part of Paul's letters. Nor are the inspired New Testament epistles that are in our hands the only letters that Paul wrote we can be sure that he conducted regular correspondence with churches and individuals all over the world. Paul was saying this, don't underestimate how deeply connected my spiritual condition, my spiritual frame of mind is with your faithfulness and with your testimony to the Lord. That's a scary thing to link our frame of mind and peace of mind so deeply with another person's actions. And yet, you know what we find? We find the Lord Jesus does the very same thing. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He doesn't hold us at a distance, but instead He makes us a very part of His own being. And when Paul says that now we live if you stand fast in the Lord, he's saying I can't overstate to you how important it was for me to hear that you're still serving the Lord. I understand that you and I ought to do what we do for the Lord and Him alone. I'm aware of that. I understand that He ought to be the preeminent motivation in all that we do. But don't ever dismiss what a profound impact your choices make on other people. There are people that if they see you fall, they'll fall. There's people that if they see you falter, they'll fall. There's people that if, if they see you abandon ship, if they see you desert, they'll derail. They'll be discouraged. I'm not saying that ought to be the prevailing motive, but it ought to be something that lives in our heart and mind. that Hey, there's people watching me, counting on me, looking to the way that I'm living my life. His life was linked with theirs. And then in verses 9 and 10, his life was lived for them. He mentions two things, his praise to God for them. He says in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all our joy, wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. He said we're praising God every day that you're holding the path, that you're staying true, that you're living for the Lord. But I think if we look at this a little more carefully and think about it a little more explicitly and analytically, he says what thanks can we render? And then in verse number 10 he says, Night and day praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. In other words, Paul said, how can we thank God for you? Here's how we can thank God for you. We can continue to pray for you. We rarely think of prayer in this way. But you remember that Samuel in the Old Testament said to Israel, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. We're really thankful for the people that have invested in our lives and have encouraged us. You know the greatest way we can show that gratitude? is through praying for them. Praying that we would live a life like theirs, but praying for them that they would stay faithful to the Lord. You see how deeply intimate this relationship was. Paul had received good news from Thessalonica, but he did not relax his disciplined prayer life on their behalf on that account. Instead, he redoubled his efforts because they had flaws in their faith. A margin of error existed in their understanding of the second coming of Christ. Some of the Christians did not have a belief that behaved in other words. Paul would deal with these issues as far as possible by mail. However, another visit to them was clearly desirable. In the meantime, though, he could bring them to the throne room of God and beseech God to shore up their faith. So we see Paul's concern, we see Paul's comfort, and then finally, we see Paul's compulsion. What caused him to do this? What was motivating him? Verse number 11, Paul says this, Now God Himself and our Father... And our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. He goes on to say, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God even our Father. And here we have the introduction again of this scene at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In other words, Paul's compulsion basically revolved around two things. One... We see Paul and the ruler of his life. We see who he saw, but then we see also what he sought. Now, let me make a few statements here. I want you to listen carefully. When he describes the person he was focused on, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as much as Paul was moved by his emotions, he remained clear in his thinking and resolute in his decisions. He never allowed himself to be ruled uh, by his intellect or his emotions or his will alone. He made decisions on a deeper level. His decisions were spiritual, ruled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, listen this carefully. This close linking of the Father with our Lord Jesus Christ is an acknowledgment of the deity of the Lord Jesus. Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians is one of the earliest of the New Testament writings. And it gives us valuable proof of the way the early church accepted and taught the deity of Christ. The Lord Jesus is here united with the Father in terms of His deity, but separated from the Father in terms of His person. The Greek verb that is translated direct is in the singular number, notwithstanding that two names form its subject. Thus the simple grammatical law that a verb must agree with its subject in number is set aside in order that the unique relationship existing between the persons of the Godhead may be indicated. Don't miss that distinct, grammatical, profound truth. God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Paul was reminding them that the person he was keeping his heart fixed upon was the very Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God the Son, the Son of God. Who he saw, but then we see what he saw. He was praying that God would direct our way unto you. You know, generally speaking, three factors figure in the equation of divine guidance. Circumstances play a part, constituting what we could call the outward indicator. Often events that happen to us seem to indicate a change. For instance, with Elijah, the brook dried up. He had been divinely directed to that brook by the word of the Lord. How long he remained there is uncertain. We do know, however, that for that particular period in his life, he was in the center of God's will. But the brook dried up. It was evidently time for a change, unless, of course, God had indicated that he intended to provide him water to drink as miraculously as he had provided him food to eat. Elijah came face to face with a decision that was forced on him by his circumstances. Faced with a dry brook and the imminent prospect of a miserable death by thirst, Elijah pondered his next move. He waited, however, for God to speak. Circumstances alone do not constitute clear leading from the Lord. Circumstances can be defe- deceptive. Besides, Satan can, and that was often does, manipulate and exploit circumstance. He used circumstances in the temptation of Lord Jesus himself to try to beguile him into making a wrong move. Not until after the Lord, in the will of his Father, and led by the Holy Spirit, had fasted for 40 days and was afterward and hungered, Did the tempter come to him with the suggestion, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread? Surely it could not be God's will for Jesus actually to starve to death in that wilderness, especially when the Lord had the means to take matters into his own hands and relieve his distress. But that was the very essence of the first temptation, to act independently of God and to respond to circumstances alone. Paul says, we're praying that God would direct our path. How does he do that? Well, one indicator is circumstances. The second factor in guidance is the inward indicator. In other words, our own thoughts and feelings about the matter. After all, God has given us brains. When considering God's will, common sense as we call it, is not necessarily to be set aside. God does want us to act rationally. The majority of our daily decisions we can make by far on the basis of our own thoughts and feelings. Moreover, Just because something appeals to our reason, temperament, secret desires, or instinctive impulses does not necessarily mean that a proposed move must be suspect on that account. In other words, just because you want something doesn't mean it's not God's will. Just as surely as just because you want something does it mean that it's God's will. That alone does not necessarily tell us. God does not usually perform miracles, especially when a little thought can suggest an alternative. Our own logical deductions may lead us to the right conclusion. There's a place in all of this for consulting others as well, for getting all the facts. Our own feelings can be consulted, especially if we ensure that they are pure. All the ordinary means that we habitually use for making thousands of decisions every day are part of the process when we try to decide the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But here again, inward indicators can sometimes lead us astray just as much as can the outward indicators. Paul confessed to King Agrippa that in his unconverted days, he verily thought with himself that he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Joshua thought that it was a good idea to sign a treaty with the Gibeonites, but he was wrong. He was unduly influenced by what seemed to be good, solid evidence. He was wrong, as God would have told him, had he consulted his Bible. Lot thought that he had excellent reasons for choosing the well-watered plains of Jordan, but he was wrong. Had he sought the Lord's mind on the matter, he never would have gone. Eve listened to what she believed to be the voice of reason and common sense when Satan tempted her. Likewise, Adam foolishly and disastrously followed the voice of his heart and plunged the human race into sin. Both the mind and the heart are vulnerable to wrong impressions. We should particularly suspect clamoring pressure, impulses that would force us into an immediate decision without taking time to inquire of the Lord. The third factor in securing divine guidance, though, is the upward indicator. God ultimately makes clear to us by means of His Word. Even here we must be careful. Flinging the Bible open at random, plunging a finger on a text, and seeking thus to obtain guidance is insulting alike to God and our own intelligence. Playing that kind of Russian roulette with the Holy Scriptures is foolish. We must read the Bible steadily and systematically. We must meditate on verses in their context and keep an open mind for the still small voice of God to speak to our inner man. God can reinforce a word, a phrase, a text, a passage, and a truth. Then sooner or later, God will speak directly to our need and reveal His mind clearly and beyond all ambiguity. But that takes time and receptiveness to the mind of the Spirit. It also calls for a willingness to do what God says when He does make a course of action clear. When our circumstances, our inward convictions, and our reading of the Word of God all line up, we're usually headed on a safe course. So Paul waited for the Lord's leading. In other words, he prayed, he sought for the Lord to direct our way unto you. He preferred to be sure rather than sorry. In other words, he says this, I'm never taking my eyes off of the Lord's direction in my life. So we see Paul and the uh, ruler of his life. And then we see Paul in the reward of his love. He says, and the Lord makes you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Uh, Meanwhile, Paul waited for a favorable opportunity to return to see the Thessalonians, and he had some good advice for them. He says love towards one another. Love, more love, abounding love, abounding love toward all believers, abounding love toward all men. That was the kind of abounding love that they themselves had experienced from him. We can never have too much of that kind of love. Divine love uh, is the highest kind of love in the universe, the love that beats in the very heart of God. It has no explanation outside of God himself. God loves us (coughs) excuse me, in all of our wretchedness and lostness with a love that passes all understanding. In trying to explain, I thought this was good, in trying to explain to the children of Israel why God loved them, Moses finally resorted to this explanation. He loves you because he loves you in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's simply God's nature to love. And this kind of love in the Christian is the direct result of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul loved lost people and saved people alike with this kind of love. Love seeks the well-being of all. It's no respecter of persons. It keeps no running account of injuries suffered. It is marvelously kind. It works no ill to any, but seeks out opportunities to do good to all. Christian love is far more than mere affection. Love may and often does involve the emotions, but Christian love is commanded. Therefore, is as much an action of the will as it is of the emotions and intellect. The Thessalonians were enduring fierce persecution at the hands of their enemies, particularly at the hands of the Jews. They must have been tempted to retaliate. Many of them might have nurtured desires for vengeance and harbored active dislike toward their enemies. Win them by love, was Paul's advice. To respond bitterly to persecution is self-defeating and destructive of character. God reserves all vengeance to himself, as is his own prerogative. Here again, the Lord Jesus is our supreme example. In other words, he says, in the meantime, just keep loving each other keep loving each other, love saved people, love lost people, love everybody you come across, and God will guard your heart. Then finally, we see Paul in the return of his Lord. Verse number 13, he describes the first of two events. First is the review of the saints by the Lord. He says, here's why I'm saying this. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father." Here at the end of the verse, when he uses the word coming, it's again the word parousia. We've already seen that the word refers to the Lord's presence, specifically in a prophetic context. To the Lord's coming in the air and to our appearing before Him at the judgment seat of Christ before we accompany Him back to earth to deal with His foes. Three words are associated with the second coming of Christ. The parousia, which has to do with the fact of the Lord's being present. Epiphany, which has to do with the Lord's manifestation of Himself first to the church as part of the parousia in the air, and then later to the world, which is delayed until the apocalypse, the unveiling of the Lord's glory. The first great act in the coming end-time drama is the parousia. The word refers not only to the coming of the Lord Jesus, but also to His actual presence. It refers to the Lord's immediate presence in the proximity of this planet to His arrival in the air surrounded by the clouds. The Lord ascended visibly before the astonished gaze of His disciples on the brow of Olivet. Then he was wrapped with the, around with the clouds, and they saw him no more. He's to come in like manner, but the process is reversed. First the Lord will descend, invisible to the eyes of men, hidden in the clouds. Later he will burst upon the astonished eyes of men, and they will see him whom they pierce visibly, bodily descending toward the earth's surface, accompanied by his saints to deal with his foes. The period in between is the parousia. The perusia is an important interlude indeed. The raptured saints meet the Lord in the air encompassed with clouds. This is our reunion. The Lord's presence in the cloud signals the opening of His court. The judgment seat of Christ begins. Indeed, judgment begins in very truth at the house of God. At this great arraignment, the works of the Lord's people will be reviewed to be rewarded or rebuked as need be. Some believers will appear before Him empty-handed and will see their life deeds go up in smoke as wood, hay, and stubble. Others will have gold, silver, and precious stones to lay at his feet, that being symbolic of their labors for him. All the blemishes, spots, and wrinkles of the bride, the church, will be removed. Rewards will be given, and each one's position in the coming kingdom will be determined. Remember that this is a judgment seat, not a mercy seat. It will be a sobering event, and it is inescapable for every believer. So Paul says this, I'm laboring in your life because one of these days you will stand before God. And in that day, I want you to stand before Him unblameable in holiness before God. Then he says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. What can we say about this? The duration of the judgment seat review is not revealed, nor are we told the process. To some extent, at least, the parousia of Christ runs simultaneously with the parousia of the Antichrist, his revealing. While we are being prepared for the coming kingdom, antediluvian and sodomite wickedness will come to a head on the earth. A rising tide of lawlessness will meet God's outpoured judgments descending from on high. The Antichrist will appear, seize control of Europe, revive the Roman Empire, sign his seven-year treaty with Israel, nod approval at the building of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, confront Israel's foes, seize the world, inaugurate the Great Tribulation, and march to Armageddon. All of this will take time. Meanwhile, the Prusia in the sky will continue. The judgment seat will give way to the marriage supper of the Lamb, even as the stage is set on earth for the battle of Armageddon. Both Perusias will end, the clouds will part, and every eye will see the blazing glory of the returning Christ. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming, the Perusia of the Son of Man be. He will paralyze the Antichrist, consume him with the brightness, the epiphania of his coming, his Perusia, as Paul reveals later. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, as Matthew 13 says. The Lord's feet will rest upon the Mount of Olives, which will instantly split asunder. Unfulfilled prophecy still awaits the rapture of the church, which will be a catalyst to set its fulfillment in motion. But nothing stands between us and the summons of God. No premonitions, no warnings, no signals, no prophecies. Again and again, our Lord likens His coming to that of a thief with the consequent need of our unceasing alertness. No thief gives warning of His coming. The parousia then includes the ordeal of the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul never lost sight of that fact. It was his spur here to the Thessalonians to urge them on to stability and holiness in life. In other words, he said, I'm laboring in your life because I know I'm going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And you should be laboring in your life because you likewise will stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ. It is a stabilizing truth.